This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I'm going to ask you two questions now. There's our hot question of the day, and then we're going to have a little fun here too. Our hot question of the day is on a more serious topic. We're talking later today with lawyer Kyla Lee, uh, who has written this really interesting column, arguing that the public is not entitled to more information from police about the investigation into the whole uh, recent manhunt that we had here looking into Barsh Migelski and Cam McLeod. There has, I think, been a tremendous amount of public demand for why aren't the police telling us more? Where's our police update? Uh, What do they know and why aren't they sharing that? And that's more so more pressure than we have seen in previous kind of criminal stories that we have covered. Well, her point on this is that no, they're doing the right thing, that they don't need to tell the public more. And she does a great job of explaining why that is. So we're going to be hearing more from her coming up, but that's what we're asking you for our hot question of the day today. Are you happy with the amount of information that has been provided by the RCMP in this case? Do you say, yes, this is good policing? Or do you think, no, no, we need more answers. This has been a public case where many people in the general public have been impacted by this. Just think of what the people of Gillum have been through, right, for a few weeks there. Uh, do you think we need more answers? Now, you can go to Sarah 980 to cast your vote at CKNW or at Sarah 980 That's on Twitter. And you can email me, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. So there's that very serious topic that we're doing for our hot question of the day. Uh, but because we don't have too many options when we give you a Twitter poll, Gordon and I got started on this other topic about food. If there was one food that you could eat for the rest of your life, every single day, what would it be? Now, Gord said it would be Reese's peanut butter cups. I said it would be sushi. So he asked around over there in the global newsroom about what everybody there would eat. He tells me that Terry Shint said a piece of cheesecake, that Terry could eat a piece of cheesecake every day. I also support that move. Emily Lazatin said it's a piece of aged white cheddar cheese. She could eat that every single day. And of course, Gord's the Reese's peanut butter cup. Now, if you've got a little something you'd like to share with us, you can do that. Jean emailed me and told me that wild salmon sashimi, she'd eat that every single day. Simi at cknw.com. The Sino-British Joint Declaration was signed back in December of 1984. Do you know what that was? Well, it was an international treaty signed between the People's Republic of China and the United Kingdom. It laid out the rules for the British handover of Hong Kong in 1997. And that agreement said, and China agreed to, a, quote, one country, two systems principle, essentially, that life in Hong Kong would remain unchanged for a period of 50 years, all the way to 2047. So that, in a nutshell, can give you an idea of what protests in Hong Kong are about. The concern that China has been incrementally and slowly breaching that 1984 agreement. The protests in Hong Kong are into their 11th week and growing in intensity. For the second day in a row, the Hong Kong airport has been shut down and there have been clashes between the protesters and police. Joshua Wong is a Hong Kong student activist and he spoke to the shift with Drex overnight and says that Canada needs to stand with the protesters. Police brutality is far from our imagination. It's time for world leaders to consider. If they don't speak up for human rights, in Hong Kong and China because of commercial interests of trade deal, they lose all moral authorities to speak out elsewhere. That's why I hope it's time for world leaders, especially politicians in Canada, they have lost 
there are lots of Canadians live in Hong Kong. They should not keep silence under the crackdown of human rights in Hong Kong. All right. So what should Canada be doing? Our next guest is Charles Burton, a Brock University professor and two-time Canadian diplomat in China. Well, Charles, thank you very much for joining us to talk about this today. Uh, Maybe we should start with a little look at the actual protests themselves here. Why do you think this is happening? From your experience in China and Hong Kong, why do you think this is happening right now? Well, you know, the Chinese government under Deng Xiaoping, the leader at the time, um, made commitments to the people of Hong Kong that after China resumed sovereignty over Hong Kong in 1997, that there would be 50 years of no change, one country, two systems. And in more recent times, the government of China has tried to, as as the Hong Kong people interpret it, renege on that agreement by imposing a school curriculum which is strongly pro-China and and then uh, reneging on a commitment to allow for universal suffrage elections of the chief executive officer of Hong Kong, which should have happened in 2017, and then more recently attempting to impose an extradition law that would allow the PRC, the mainland, to extradite um, Hong Kong people to face um, Chinese justice in China, which would really negate the whole um, independence of, of Hong Kong's judiciary. So there are very valid reasons why people in Hong Kong feel that they have not been treated um, in accordance with the agreement that China and Britain made over the reversion to sovereignty. The Chinese government is not prepared to make any compromises, and as a result, we've got people, large numbers of people in the streets and the police trying to to get them to go home by sending out tear gas and in some cases rubber bullets and other projectiles. So the situation is pretty uh, is pretty serious and there doesn't seem to be any path to resolution as both sides seem determined to maintain their positions. It certainly seems that way. What about looking at this from an international perspective? How should countries like Canada, do you think, be responding to this? Well, Canada, at the request of Britain and China, endorsed the joint declaration that uh, that was lodged with the United Nations that set up this commitment of one country, two systems, Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong, and no change for 50 years. So, uh, you know, we do have an obligation to this because we can be suggesting that we would want to ensure that, that the agreement is maintained in the spirit in which it was originally signed. And so in addition to Britain really having a responsibility to Hong Kong, arguably till 2047, so does Canada and the other countries that endorse the agreement. But, of course, Canada has been reluctant to speak out too strongly for fear of of, uh, causing difficulties for the over 300,000 Canadian citizens resident in Hong Kong. And, of course, because of our ongoing conflict with China over the arrest of Michael Kovrick and Michael Svavor, and uh, our trade dispute where China has, on spurious grounds, um, prevented Canadian agricultural commodities from being imported into China, making for a significant hit for a lot of Canadian farming families in retaliation for Canada's um, detaining of the Huawei CFO at the request of the United States who want an extradite there to face serious charges of fraud. Do you think then that does that mean that Canada has probably more of a stake in what's going on there than most other countries? Absolutely. I mean, the the question really would be um, issues like if um, martial law is declared in Hong Kong as a means to suppress this movement, 
um, would the Chinese government acknowledge the the Canadian citizenship status of these um, over 300,000 people, or would we have a crisis with China where Canadian citizens are being um, uh, not allowed to to realize their right of return to Canada? There, there's just enormous problems here, not to speak of the large number of Canadians who have already been arrested in Hong Kong among the 600 over 600 that the Chinese, that the Hong Kong police have already taken in. So these are all consular cases for us. So the scale of it is quite staggering. Right. And yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, discussion about this internationally. It seems like the world has been pretty quiet about what's going on in Hong Kong. Yes, I think that that, um, you know, really is a, a telling point that if this was going on in some other place, I think the global community would be much more engaged but because of the um, the importance of maintaining smooth trade and other relations with China, I think a lot of countries are more or less cowed into tacit consent for what the Chinese government's doing. I mean, it is, after all, a, a domestic matter. Hong Kong is part of China, albeit a special administrative region. But that being said, there are serious human rights concerns here, and as you point out, you know, considerable involvement of foreign nationals in this matter, and therefore one would have expected our government to be more proactive in responding than we've seen so far. Right, and not even like uh, countries getting together. Like, what about the United Kingdom leading the way on this? After all, it was their agreement, right, with China? Yes. um, Dominic Raab, the foreign minister of the United Kingdom, uh, has made one telephone call to Carrie Lam, and the Chinese government has scornfully rejected Britain's right to to be involved in this matter, although really the treaty obligation to maintaining the one country, two systems does extend till 2047, and so there's still quite a few more years to go on it. I don't think anyone expected that that it would, you know, that Britain's involvement would just peter out uh, a couple of years after they signed uh, the joint declaration. So when you look at what's happening right now, then, do you think well, this is just, there's, it's a, we're almost at a stalemate, right? How can this change? Well, you know, it would be ideal if the government of China decided that they should become conciliatory and accede to some of the demands of the demonstrators. Um, you know, they, they want the withdrawal of the extradition law that the Chinese have already said that that one is dead, so that one's probably doable. They would also like the Chinese government to cease referring to the demonstrations as a riot because uh, if the people who have been captured on facial recognition cameras are are later convicted of rioting, that sentence for that would be 10 years imprisonment. They would like the, the 600 who've been arrested to be released without charge, and they'd like an investigation of police brutality in addressing these demonstrations. So... There are a number of these that I think the Chinese government could uh, engage in without too much loss of face, but the more likely consequence seems to be a brutal crackdown, which would be putting it down by violence and and garrisoning Hong Kong under martial law, which would then have a very serious impact on China's relations with Western nations, perhaps even worse than it was after the 1989 Tiananmen incident. So, Charles, when you look at what's happening right now, then do you see an end in sight? As you said yourself, it looks like the two sides are pretty entrenched here. Well, I don't think that this demonstrations can go on forever. It's already been, we're now into the 11th week of them, and they're becoming more and more disruptive of normal life in Hong Kong. You know, the airport is now closed. Um, 
a lot of key transportation infrastructure is being um, affected by these demonstrations. And the Chinese government's also planning to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China with a big military parade and celebratory activities all over the country for October the 1st. So my my unfortunate, most likely scenario is in fact a violent crackdown and a possible loss of life as a result and certainly a, a Hong Kong which will be very, very resentful of um, China's abandonment of of what the Hong Kong people regard as the commitment that China made to the British at the time that Britain returned um, Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty over 20 years ago. Well, Charles, we'll have to keep in touch on this topic. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Good to speak with you. As Charles Burton, a Brock University professor and two-time former Canadian diplomat in China, the manhunt, the search for Barish Magalski and Cam McLeod was something that fascinated and caught the attention of everyone right across the country. And while we were talking about that day after day here on the show, I was continually, and still am actually, getting emails from people with questions about the case. Well, how come we haven't heard about this? Or what about this situation? And I think there was a tremendous amount of pressure on the police in this particular case to be more forthcoming than they usually are. We are not the United States where you see police officers, you know, constantly giving out tons of information about crimes and what has happened. We're very different here. And many people have said, well, that's what we should be more forthcoming. We should, police should be telling us more. Well, our next guest thinks differently, actually. She says that no matter what the public might think here, the public is not actually entitled to information and answers because that could potentially hinder a police investigation. Her name is Kyla Lee, who's a very familiar criminal lawyer here in Vancouver, and here's what she chatted to us about. Well, Kyla, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Now, we have heard this about this story for weeks now. And one of the things that I always hear from people is, why aren't the police telling us this? Why aren't the police telling us that? But you've got some thoughts on that. Yes, uh, essentially, the police don't have any obligation beyond warning the public about dangers to keep them informed on the progress of an investigation. And there's lots of really good reasons for that. Okay, because I've, what I've always heard is that, listen, like murder is a very public thing. This is about public safety. Why doesn't the public deserve to know everything that's going on? At this stage, you know, there's no present or ongoing danger to the public. We know now that the people that the police believe committed these murders have been found dead. Uh, so there's no ongoing duty to the public to warn them about a danger. And even the, the uh, police duty to warn only arises in certain circumstances. It doesn't arise just because there's a murderer on the loose. Um, it has to be something where the police believe that the murderer poses an ongoing risk to public safety. Just because a person's committed one or two murders doesn't necessarily mean that they pose a danger because the reasons for those murders may themselves mean that that person isn't a danger. Right. But then why keep that a secret, though? Like, what is the point of not telling the public what they know? Sometimes the police don't want to tell the public what they know because it's information that may become useful to them later in the investigation. Keeping a lot of information private allows them to do better interrogations with subjects, put information to suspects that they might not otherwise be prepared for and gauge their responses. So it's an investigative tactic that police will need to use. And also releasing forensic details to the public also has the potential to compromise future investigations. People might take steps to eliminate evidence because they know how police are using forensic evidence that's been collected to prove the identity of killers. 
I guess what we're always comparing it to is we see what's happening in the United States and it seems like their law enforcement, well, they put it all out there and they don't seem to have a problem, you know, in the legal process. They don't, but they have a very different legal process than we do in Canada. In the United States, most crimes are tried by juries and uh, their method of uh, the admissibility of evidence is much different than in Canada, where you have the opportunity to choose between a jury or a judge um, and where you can bring arguments that if the jury pool is tainted because of how much information was made public, that you can't get a fair trial. And so therefore you should be you know, set loose. And in a case like this, that would be something that would shock the public. But the huge amount of attention that was paid to this, not just nationally, but globally, would have made a very strong argument for the accused had they survived and had they been brought to trial, that they couldn't have a fair trial. And so it's important for the police to keep back many details so that they can say trial fairness hasn't been compromised. The majority of our case hasn't been released to the public. Okay, but now that uh, the suspects in this case are no longer with us, what prevents the police from saying what they know? Uh, Again, this risk that future investigations could be compromised. I mean, we even saw in this case uh, things like forensic countermeasures being used when the suspects burned out vehicles. Um, So to eliminate any uh, forensic or DNA evidence in those vehicles, to eliminate fingerprints and and other methods of evidence collection. And if they are to release the details of what they know, they may give uh, information to other people who've committed crimes about how to cover their tracks. Kyla, is there a balance here, though, right? Because sometimes it feels like, I understand what you're saying, but sometimes it seems like law enforcement goes uh, to the extreme of that to say we're not releasing any information. I do agree that there are some cases where the law enforcement does go to the extreme and where there doesn't seem to be any valid reason on the face of it not to release information about a particular crime, particularly one captured public attention. But I think this is a case where the RCMP has given a great deal of information to the public. You know, they commented um, on the initial uh, murders. They com- they commented on the connection between the two. Uh, the manhunt was well documented in the media. Uh, they came out and they gave media updates almost every day, even if it was only a small amount of information. And even after the bodies were found and they said, you know, we're reasonably certain that these are the two, they came out and they gave a a press statement in relation to the results of the autopsy confirming the cause of death. All of that was detailed they didn't have to provide. So, you know, when you compare this to those circumstances, this is one where they have given a lot of information to the public compared to many other cases. And do you think this case is unique? Like, was that the result, do you think, of public pressure? I think it was the result of public pressure and also some, you know, very good investigative work by members of the media who were consistent in asking the police for more answers and pressuring them to give more answers. And of course, that's the role of the media is to get answers for the public. And the police have to sort of balance uh, their need to deal with the media and need to inform the public with their obligations in protecting the investigation. I think sometimes for the public, too, from their perspective, we we want closure on some of these cases, right? The the police will tell tell us some things. We go, oh, that's an interesting case. What's going on with that case? And then we don't hear anything else. And I think for us, we're just looking for, well, what happened with that? Oh, absolutely. And this is a case where, you know, I too would love to have some closure in my mind for, you know, why? What was the motivation for these killings? I mean, these are two young kids from a a community close to where I grew up. Um, And and to me, I want to know what, you know, what made these kids into killers? 
And uh, I mean, that's not an answer that we're likely to get. And it may not even be an answer that the RCMP is aware of. They might have physical evidence to connect them to the killings, but not any evidence to support motive. So it might just be something they can't answer. So you think this particular case was unusual in the amount of information the police did provide to the public? I think for a, a case where there was so much investigation ongoing at the time, uh, the amount of information the police gave to the public was unusual. They announced where they were searching. They announced um, the various pieces of evidence they found that sort of led them to look in various places. They released video surveillance uh, to the public showing these individuals. And if we look at you know other killings that have happened in that area, I mean, how many women have gone, Indigenous women have gone missing or been murdered on that stretch of highway? And we've heard very little from the police yeah. about those murders, even though it's been happening for so long. So I do think this case was unusual in that regard. I was wondering, too, if it was unusual because you had people who were not Canadian citizens, the, the original two uh, murder victims, one Australian and one American. Did that perhaps change how this case was dealt with? Absolutely. The whole world was watching what was going on with this investigation. And the RCMP had an obligation to themselves to give enough information to satisfy the Australian media and the American media that they were actively looking for the perpetrators of this crime and that they were taking all reasonable steps to bring these people to justice or to bring an end to this. Interesting. Well, Kyla, thank you so much for joining us for this today. Thank you for having me. Now, that's Kyla Lee, criminal lawyer in Vancouver. That does make me want to go home and watch the movie Pirates of the Caribbean because that's where that music is actually from. There's a very good reason why we're playing that right now. It's because of a special day that is happening tomorrow. Mark this on your calendar. Anybody who grew up here knows that one of the rites of passage of being from BC as a kid is that you had pirate packs at White Spot when you were growing up. And I remember being very upset when I turned 13 and aged out of the pirate pack because it's like 12 and under or something, right? And so I could no longer order the... I took it literally. I could no longer order the pirate pack. Well, guess what? I know there's a lot of adults out there who are just like that. And tomorrow is the day for us because it's pirate pack day, which includes adult pirate packs, which I think is just the greatest thing. So tomorrow, August 14th, Pirate Pack Day is returning to White Spot. It's one day only. What that means is that $2 from each pirate pack sold is going to help send deserving children and young adults to what's called White Spot Week at Zajac Ranch for Children. This is a fully inclusive summer camp where everything is accessible for children with life-threatening illnesses and chronic disabilities. It is amazing. I have always wanted to go out and uh, visit the Zajac Ranch, and I've talked about doing it, and as soon as I have an opportunity one day, I would love to go and do this. But we wanted to learn more about how great Pirate Pack Day is and what an impact it has had. So one of our favorite people joins us now. It's Warren Earhart, president of White Spot Restaurants. Hi, Warren. Hi, Simi. How are you? Well, thanks to you, I ate half of a legendary hamburger for breakfast, so it's kind of well, <laughs> pretty good. You, that's bre- breakfast of champions, that's all <laughs> I can say. <laughs> it is the breakfast of champions. How long have you guys been doing Pirate Pack Day? Well, actually, we've been doing it for 10 years, but we've been doing it, the adult Pirate Pack for the last nine. So it's been about a, a decade that we've been doing it, and it's been a great success. Oh, and how successful has it been? Well, we've raised um, over $780,000 over these years, and, and uh, that's really, you know, done so much for Zajac Ranch. It's just a wonderful facility out in Stave Lake and Mission area. 
And uh, this creates a lot of hype and excitement in our restaurants. Our staff love it. Our guests love it. And uh, and the big winner is Zajac and kids that have a chance to go to the ranch. And I know I've talked to you about this before because you've had a chance to go out and actually see the good work that they do there, haven't you? Yes, I have. I tell you, it is uh, it's something that you risk you can just bottle. It's the the energy and the passion of, of both the uh, the campers themselves and the respite it provides to the the families of these a uh, lot of cases special needs kids that have a chance to get away to to be on the ranch and then and you see the faces light up and yeah, there's just so many great stories and it, it's you know, Sammy, I, I, one day you got to get out there. If I you want haven't. to. I know. I really yeah. want to get out there and see that. Uh, tell me about the history of the Pyre Pack. When did this get started at White Spot? Well, I can tell you, uh, on, uh, it was actually uh, July 23rd, and it was over 51 years ago. It was our recent, just recently had a birthday. And um, it, the Pirate Pack was uh, the, the president of White Spot at the time, Brian Lara, and his daughter, Erin, um, who really came up with the concept about creating the kids' meal. And uh, in their backyard, they had a... Um, um, a plastic-styled um, like ship in their backyard, a right. boat. And uh, from there, it just sort of grew in the fact that we should come up with a kids' program. And so the first boat that came out was 1968, and it was uh, the brainchild of um, Aaron uh, Lara, the, uh, the daughter of the president. Yeah. So yeah, was that because, like, must the idea of having like a kids meal at a restaurant must have been relatively new at the time? Must have been pioneering. Well, I think the, the, the probably two things. The the, the the menu itself was was probably unique, but I think the vessel, the fact that it was something that was not just a plate of food that the child could can have, but something that the child could enjoy and, and uh, have some let the imagination go wild. So I think that that's was probably the unique part of of uh, as much as the the romance of the pirate pack was actually the boat itself. Now, Warren, I know that there's a number of things on that white spot menu that are probably completely and totally untouchable, right? Like you cannot touch it. You can't take it off the menu. Can you mess with the Pyre Pack? Oh, never. I tell you, we've actually tried variations of tweaking things, and I probably get more calls uh, about, hey, what happened to this item and that item as well, including, um, you know, you, 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 you did something different with the macaroni and cheese. We were looking at different um, sauces and things, and it was like, don't touch it. Like, just, <laughs> just, just leave it. And so, uh, yeah, we, I get more peer pressure of uh, the pirate pack maybe than any other menu item. Yeah, you can't change the gold coin. Well, that's just it. That, yeah, that, that doubloon is really a – and the real you know, challenge is do you eat it first or later? Do you put it in your pocket? And uh, it's usually the parent that might grab that coin before the child gets a chance. So true. That is, I used to do that all the time with my kids. But as a kid, I was, that was the first thing I grabbed when the pirate pack oh, showed just, up yeah, there. Yeah, that's something that's great. So people call you, Warren, and tell you like if they think something has changed at White Spot? Yeah, I tell you, it's, and I, I just love the, the openness and the closeness to our guests in our restaurants because it's um, – um, I think it's just that, you know, so many people are so passionate about our brand and, and uh, whether there's a menu item that they, they long for, or why it comes off the menu and, um, you know, some of the decisions that we had to make over the years or menu items that you believe they sold and maybe didn't sell as much as they need to. And and um, and so you, you go through that. And, and I just I love the fact that people will take the time to say, hey, look at that. You know what I really miss is this menu item or that menu item yeah. or uh, have you done something different with this, or have you ever thought about uh, something else? You know, m- most recently, the you know the the, the addition of um, 
of uh, the Beyond Burger, which has really caught the, you know, yeah. everybody's uh, by excitement over that. Now. And, and putting avocado on our menu and, and doing an avocado uh, Beyond Burger was something unique and different over this last little while for us as well. So it was looking at the, the movement for plant-based proteins with burgers, which is uh, obviously Beyond is leading the way with that. But also avocado is a menu item, which was a lot of people are asking for. And, and, you know, Sydney, a lot of times we hear that from our staff first because we do a lot of surveying with our employees to say, what are you hearing from um, the guests that you have coming into a restaurant? What do you like personally? And your best salespeople are making sure that your current staff really enjoy and the employees that you have are really enjoying the menu that we have already. So uh, we use them a lot for sounding born and create uh, uh, any kind of awareness that they can help us with. So right. uh, avocados and, and uh, the Beyond Burger was a natural, and and uh, Danny Markowitz, our chef, came up with a uh, unique way of uh, presenting that burger, and it's been incredibly successful. Right, but tomorrow what you want is for everybody to order a pirate pack, adults included. Absolutely. Yeah, tomorrow it's the big day. It's adult pirate packs and uh, and uh, mainly burgers. It's uh, you know burgers, uh, different type of burgers on our menu as well. And uh, just enjoy it. And uh, and you're you're helping a great cause as well. All right. Sounds good, Warren. Thank you. We will do that. I appreciate that, Simi. Thank you. That's Warren Earhart, the president of White Spots. Tomorrow is Pirate Pack Day. $2 of every Pirate Pack sold is going to help send deserving kids and young adults to White Spot Week at Zajac Ranch. Zajac Ranch is just amazing. The good work. So you can have, can you imagine, take a bunch of friends, go for lunch at White Spot tomorrow, and everybody order adult Pirate Packs and watch them bring that, uh, bring it down and sit it right in front of you on the table. It will be awesome. A scary moment at Playline yesterday afternoon. You've heard some of this in the news today. The ride known as the Beast was in operation. And while people were on it and it was going, there was this loud noise. And then it leaked oil, kind of rained down on the people who were down below. So the ride is now on hiatus while they get this problem figured out and fixed. But it was pretty scary for those who were there, like our next guest, Irene Morrison, because her 11-year-old son was on the ride while all of this was going on and she was watching from down below. Irene, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. But what happened? Can you tell us the story? Well, we were watching, my sister and I were watching my nephew and my son on the ride and it had just started and it was getting its momentum going and we heard this horrible sound. It was like a a grinding metal sound, if that's probably the best way I can describe it. But Mm -hmm. I knew right away something wasn't right because my son goes on this ride all the time. And so we started to get that panicked feeling, something's going on. And then the next thing I know, I look at my hands because I'm feeling like I'm getting wet and I see sprinkles all over me. And then I look up and I see that it looks like it's raining from the ride. And I taste it and I smelt it all over my face. And it was, it was oil. That's when I realized it. I said, it's oil. And then it stops sprinkling and the people in the lineup are now actually getting like doused in it. So I was farther away, so I wasn't getting doused. I was getting sprinkles. They were actually getting poured oil. So Ooh. everyone starts running out of the line in a panic, jumping over the rails to just get away. And these people are saturated. We're not talking just a little sprinkle like I got. They were saturated. And then um, I start to run up the exit because I'm in a panic thinking, how am I going to get my son off this ride? And the girl in the booth had this look of terror on her face, and she waves to me to stop, so I can't go anywhere. And I notice at this point that the ride is now starting to slow down. Mm-hmm. So I was 
just watching it, waiting for it to stop. Because in my mind, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know if it was going to catch on fire, if it's going to break in front of us. We didn't know. It was just a panic state by everyone. Right. But they so, did They did manage to like slow it did. down, stop it safely. When you talk to your son afterwards, like the people who were on that ride, did they hear all this? Did they know that something had gone they on? They heard the noises. Yeah. And they, they didn't think it was uh, right. And they were nervous, they said. And apparently my nephew said, I think we're going to die. Oh, and then, but the ride just continued as normal. So they didn't realize that the oil was pouring on people until the ride stopped. And then they noticed that their bags were saturated because the bags were underneath. Right. And so they grabbed their bags and everyone's running, panicked to get out. So then they had to run down the exit, which is still pouring oil. So then they get covered as they run out. So, so what, did the P- what did Playland tell you about all this? What did they say? To be honest, I haven't had Playland actually talk to me except for guest services because we went there right away. And um, what, what did they tell you? Was there anything? Like, does this happen? Is it? So it, it just happened. So the people in guest services, it, it was just news to them. So I just demanded them. Well, I, I just told them what happened, and we were just saying, this just happened. And so they said, go to the bathroom and wash up and then come back. So we washed everyone off as best as we could, and we came back, and they gave us a refund. But to be honest, I don't, I haven't actually talked to anyone since then because we just needed to leave. We needed to go home and bathe and get out of there because the kids were really upset. Yeah. Was it must've been scary for them? Are mm-hmm. they, uh, they've recovered now? Yeah. Yeah. But they're, I think they're done for rides for this season. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And you said this was one of your son's favorite rides beforehand. Yeah. So he's not sure if he'll go on the beast again, but he will go on rides again in the future, but maybe not the beast. <laughs> right. So no more Playland for this year. Perhaps he'll try again next year. Yeah. We'll go to the fair, but we won't be going on rides. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Like, have you ever heard of something like that happening before? No. So when I got home, we did some research and that's when we found out about the one in Ohio and in India that were similar. And so then it really hit home that, we were just very fortunate it had a different ending than they all did. So, right. yeah. Okay. Well, fingers crossed, right? And yeah. uh, hopefully <laughs> Reichen will get over it and everything will be just fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for telling us the story, Irene. All right. No problem. That's Irene Morrison. Uh, now, we do want to talk to the Playland people about this as well, because, I mean, you know, these rides are huge machines, right? They need to be maintained. And so what was the problem here? Do they know what it is? What is their procedure when something like this happens? Joining us now to talk more about that is Laura Balance, the spokesperson for the PE and Playland. Laura, thanks for being here. Oh, Simi, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, what happened yesterday with the Beast? So what happened was one of our rides, the Beast, um, had what we believe to be a parts issue. We're just in the final um, um, process of going through and assessing the ride. And so it was in a mechanical occurrence that obviously uh, if you were on the ride or you had somebody on the ride, uh, would have been a very scary because there was a loud noise and then we had some oil, unfortunately, drip onto some of our guests in line and, and a few of those that were on the ride. What I will say and what I'm pleased to be able to say is uh, our staff followed our emergency safety protocols to the letter. They did exactly what they were trained to do and the ride did exactly what it is designed to do, which is come to a slow scheduled stop. We were able to disembark all of the guests that were on the ride without injury. And with respect to the um, the oil issue, we're dealing with those guests on a case-by-case basis. Okay. Has this ever happened before? Have you had a problem like this? 
No, but I will say these, you know, they're, they're large mechanical items. And so sometimes parts need to be replaced. And I've, you know, I've had the honor of working with Plainland for a long time. And the, the one thing that they do very well is assess what needs to be done and do the right thing every time. And that's what's happening right now. We're doing the assessment. There'll be likely a part or, or maybe uh, two that need to be replaced. We'll get the new parts in. Our team will install them. We'll go through the protocols with respect to outside engineers, technical safety, VC, and and our own independent ride experts that are hired to come in and be consultants for us. We'll put the ride through the correct safety protocol in assessing it, and when it's ready to run, we'll put it back into our ride circulation. Okay, and, and you, you just touched on this, but just to know a little bit more, like what kind of training do the ride operators have to deal with an emergency situation like that? Well, they, they have really extensive training. And the one thing I'll say is we live in a region of the world um, that if you're going to ride amusement park rides anywhere, this is a good place to do it. The safety protocols are extremely progressive in Canada and in British Columbia. And certainly here at Playland, we have very uh, high standards when it comes to our, our ride safety protocols. So each ride at the park, and people may not uh, realize this, but um, annually, Technical Safety BC comes in and, and inspects our rides. As well, we hire world-renowned outside experts who do secondary um, inspections in advance of Playland operating for the season and also uh, in advance of the fair. So uh, there's a number of those people that are on site now doing those uh, inspections as we prepare to open the fair on Saturday. And then our own team. So we have a ride operations team and then a ride maintenance team. And all of those people are involved in ensuring those, every ride in the park is maintained mm-hmm. and, and inspected. And, uh, and that's why we have a ride safety record that is enviable to many parks in the world. So th- then this is going to be closed for now. Any idea when it will reopen? You know, I can I can guarantee it won't open one minute earlier than it should. Um, but it, uh, you know, they'll be rigorous in in inspecting it, and making sure that we're comfortable with it being ready to go. Um, but it's hard to speculate because you know this is a ride where the part will likely be coming out of Europe, um, and so it just depends on when we can get it. And uh, and then we'll certainly let people know it's a popular ride. It's yeah. one of our newer rides. And uh, and so it's disappointing for some people um, when it is down, but the right thing to do is replace it and and um, put it through the process that we have so that we can be confident when we do return it into our ride roster. Right. And then just to reiterate as well, Laura, so the people who had the oil kind of put on them and all of that, you're going to be individually in touch with them. Yeah, they were all, uh, we have a guest experience team at Playland. They were all spoken to uh, as they came off the ride or as their family member came off the ride and we'll be dealing with them individually. Some people we provided, um, it, it is a non-toxic uh, oil. Uh, it, it's actually clear. It's, it's a bit different than what we think of as, say, a car motor oil. Um, some people just wash their clothes out, um, and I guess uh, our team will take care of uh, individual situations. But I think the big thing is, is it was a riot, uh, you know, a technical malfunction within um, uh, one aspect of the ride. It was not a structural malfunction. So I think a lot of people, obviously, it's scary, mm-hmm. but. Um, but it was not a structural issue. All right. Well, listen, Laura, thank you for explaining it to us today. 
No, thank you for the opportunity. That's Laura Balance, the spokesperson for the PE and Playland, talking about the breakdown of the ride that's known as The Beast. Still being repaired. They are waiting for a part or two, she said there. So it will likely be closed for the next couple of days at least. The PE, of course, getting underway this weekend. Let's talk about car insurance premiums. Oh, it's always a hot topic, right? Especially because of ICBC and all the changes and the problems that ICBC has had. Well, starting September 1st, there's supposed to be some changes in premiums, but these latest numbers don't make anything sound very promising. According to the General Insurance Statistical Agency, BC residents pay more than everybody else when it comes to auto insurance premiums in Canada. So let's talk more about that now with the help of Richard Zussman, our Global News online legislative reporter. Uh, And I don't think we've actually talked to Richard all summer. Richard, where have you been? Oh, well, he's coming. Richard will get there soon enough. We are going to talk about this. We should probably get a head start on getting your comments because I know you're going to want to weigh in. So you can email me as a reminder, simi at cknw.com. And don't forget our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. I'll just run through some of these numbers while we're waiting for Richard here. So according to this agency, BC residents pay an average of $1,832 for car insurance per year. The next most expensive province is Ontario, where drivers pay an average of $300 less than that per year. Now, those numbers have been provided to Global News, and I believe we have tracked down Richard now, and he joins us. How are you? I'm here, Simi. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was saying, we haven't, seen, we haven't talked to you all summer long. Where have you been? I've been around. On I've vacation? Been, a little bit. We yeah. went on a great road trip with the family, the two kids, uh, through Alberta and back through BC. It was, it was outstanding. I know. I saw some pictures. It looked nice. And so now here you are great. back at work. We're talking to you about insurance. Yeah, we are. And, you know, this study is interesting. Uh, there are some questions about the study itself, considering it was done by an organization that represents uh, insurance uh, organizations and provinces where there are uh, where there's competition. So BC is not part of this organization that brought forward the information, but obviously BC has counted as well. Okay. The the other issue as well is around. Uh, this debate that we're having around uh, privatization. So the Insurance Bureau of Canada uh, is pushing these numbers. They are strong advocates for more competition. They believe that if there's more competition in BC, prices will go down. But what the provincial government and ICBC have told me today uh, in statements is that in Ontario and Alberta, where they have competition in the last year alone, they have seen in Ontario an increase uh, by 14% in the cost of auto insurance on average. In Alberta, it's a 16% increase. Uh, And here in BC, we've seen rates go up by 6%. So, you know, grass always looks greener on the other side, I think is what you, the province wants us to see. But there obviously is, like you just read off the numbers, a massive gap. $300 higher per year in BC compared to Ontario. That's a lot of money for every driver on the road. And that's just an average. In some cases, people are paying a lot, lot more than that. Okay. And so that is like a person with a clean driving record. I'm assuming they just took like an average driver and and compared those? Yeah. So that's one of the uh, concerns as well about the study is, is what rates are they looking at? ICBC has historically been critical of the study saying that they cherry pick and take the most expensive 
um, people to insure uh, in BC and compare it to the cheaper ones to insure in Ontario uh, and Alberta and other provinces. But the sense I get from the study is it's an overall look, Simi, of everyone. That right. And measures out from the driver who lives in the safest community in British Columbia that has the best driving record, who will pay the least, to the highest risk drivers in Metro Vancouver where you pay more. So my sense from looking at the data is that it encompasses the whole gamut. The greater debate, though, is should we look at this idea of private insurance? The B.C. Liberals um, are indicating that they want to move towards more competition. For now, uh, what leader Andrew Wilkinson has been saying is that let's look at that in places like potentially the taxi industry or ride sharing, offering private insurance options there for basic insurance. But it could mean that we're heading into the 2021 election, and that's one of the big election issues that the Mm -hmm. BC Liberals are saying. Let's privatize the entire system and the NDP will be sitting there and say, well, we want to stick with ICBC after all these reforms uh, that they've put in place last April and more are coming in September. Right. And let's talk about that then. So coming this September, what what are we going to see? What kind of changes will we notice? It could mean a significant change with how much you pay. So the province has said their moniker is good drivers will pay less, bad drivers will pay more. In reality, 75% of people will end up paying the same or more. 25% will end up paying less. We still, there's a calculator right now on the ICBC website where you can type in your specs and get a sense for how much you're going to pay for your renewal, for your basic and your optional insurance if you go with ICBC. So it's worth those who are getting ready to renew after September 1st to go check that out because it could be pretty drastic. And the, the people it's going to hit the hardest, Simi, are those that insure higher risk drivers. So families that have children that are, you know, haven't been behind the wheel very long or right. considered higher risk those rates could go up substantially for those families. Because that's what we've always been waiting for, right? As we heard from David Eby time and time again, good drivers should pay less and bad drivers should pay more. But what exactly is the definition of those? Right. So that's one of the things that uh, we haven't had great clarity on. So there is more clarity around... Um, though excessive speeding tickets, distracted driving, impaired driving. We got those from ICBC in the spring. Uh, I'm trying to remember June, I think. Right. Where they said that if you have two of those infractions, you will automatically pay more for your optional insurance. But in terms of like how many years you need a clean record, all of that is now built into the calculator on ICBC's website and can allow you to go and see for yourself uh, what difference it will make for your rates uh, as you get ready to renew. Right. And I guess what people would really be curious to know, like with the with the numbers that you're talking about today is, I wish we got a calculator where we could see what I would get right across the country. Yeah. So that work has been done. And ICBC every time says it's apples and oranges, that the service that's provided in BC is different. The um, liabilities, the settlements, the benefits are better here. But uh, we worked in partnership uh, with uh, the Insurance Bureau of Canada, again, a group that 
pushes for monopolization, but they have been doing a lot of this work and they provided for Global News a comparison between Alberta drivers and BC drivers. Mm-hmm. Same vehicle, same family, comparing like Surrey to Calgary. And in some cases, it was hundreds and hundreds of dollars more mm-hmm. a year for the same vehicle, same experience in different places. The challenge with Alberta, though, is in some cases, Simi, because it's a private insurer, yeah. they won't insure higher risk drivers. Uh-huh. So some people, they just won't insure. So and then, in BC, doesn't that skew the numbers then, Richard? Like, wouldn't you say if, sure. if they just take a category of people and say, we're not insuring you? That makes a difference. Yep. And that's the argument the BC government has made is that their ICBC insures everyone. And in Alberta, there are some groups that they either won't insure or they, you know, charge them a huge amount to insure. So those are the younger, higher risk drivers, those with lots of crashes, those with lots of tickets. Uh, in order to protect the investment, I guess, because they're making the assumption right. that they may be in another crash down the road and cost the company money. So that's one of the things where it really is an apples to apples, but there are those numbers out there, same person, same family, same vehicle, same everything between provinces. And you can see that it is more expensive for British Columbians. I would be curious to know then if we not necessarily compared the good driver insurance, what right. if we took somebody who had a crash or two and then compared their insurance across the country and see what would happen? That be it, it's in the a very works, different Simi. picture. It's in the works. So because I, I think because I think that's we're as these changes come into effect September, you know, watch for global news because this is one of those things that will profoundly impact millions of British Columbians. So we're trying to work on ways, you know, call into Simi show, let us know what you want to see in terms of <laughs> yeah. our coverage because we want to give British Columbians the best information possible about these changes. The other one that we've done a lot of reporting on uh, is the brokers themselves and, you know, the province has been questioned a number of times around moving to online renewals for basic insurance. You know, a lot of people have that experience where they go to their local broker, you're there for five minutes, they take a look at your old insurance paperwork, they ask you if anything's changed, you say no, they print out the new one. And in some cases, if you get both the basic and the optional, that broker is billing as much as $400 for that visit. And so the province for now... Uh, is not considering it, but it's something they could look okay. to down the road, but would profoundly shake up the brokers industry. And I've heard from a lot of brokers after we did these stories mm. about how important the service they provide. And, and okay. I agree that they give it important information, but I think almost every other jurisdiction in the world is looking at at least basic renewals online and it could be something that could save icbc some money and eventually could mean that we pay less uh, for our insurance rates all right thank you very much richard simi thank you that's richard zussman now we want to hear about your top dog or we want to see your top dog that's kind of our nickname it has been for decades here at cknw right we're known as the top dog well in order to commemorate our anniversary this week we would like to give your pet pooch the chance to become our top dog. Uh, We want to know why your dog deserves to be crowned as such. And to give you some inspiration, we've been providing you with some stories about top dogs from all over North America. For instance, today we want you to meet Bubba. Bubba is a 10-year-old boxer and recently made headlines for saving her owner's life. Have a listen to this report from WMUR News 9. Bubba didn't have the usual bounce in her step when campers spotted her out on a walk alone at Wellington Camping Park in Lee Saturday morning. It almost seemed like the 10-year-old female boxer was trying to fetch help when she returned to her campsite. It gave the park manager pause. The door was open. The dog was inside right in the doorway. Um, 
and I called for her owner and she didn't respond and I knew that there had to have been something wrong. Bubba's elderly owner was rushed to the hospital with a serious medical condition. The park owner says she was found just in time. This is a, a dog that saved her, her mummy. And uh, so she's a hero. While Bubba's owner is in the hospital, all the campground families are rallying together to let her know her dog is taken care of. We've had people just walking their dogs coming by saying, do you need anything? We got dog food, we got bones, we got this, we got that. So everybody's trying to help. And while Bubba's owner recovers in the hospital, they're bringing her photos of Bubba surrounded by love. I brought pitches up to show her the pitches of Bubba. Um, I'm planning on going back up again tomorrow to show her more pitches of Bubba. Oh, Bubba, you're such a good girl. You're such a good girl. Treat for you. Oh, that's adorable. But Bubba cannot be our top dog. Bubba is not from BC. So therefore, we need your top dog. Send us a picture. Tell us what makes your pooch such a top dog. Email your submission to topdog at cknw.com. Every day we're tweeting out a nominee for this. Oh, you should see Maggie, who was our, our winner today. It's so great. But let us know, topdog at cknw.com.